0: There was a man named Simeon, who was a great preacher. And he said one thing that's always stuck with me. And I hope it's been helpful to you. The truth of God does not lie in the middle. It lies at both of the extremes. And we talk about the golden mean and trying to get in the middle and don't be lopsided and so on and so on. But that's not the way you arrive at truth. The truth of God is daring to take both of the extremes at the same time. Let me give you an illustration. If you start reading through the New Testament, you come to a man and you say with all of his attributes, this is a man. You keep on reading and this man does things that only God can do. And you say he can't be a man, he's God. So you have a question. Is he God or is he man? And somebody comes along and says, well, don't be extreme. Don't go off on a tangent. So you water down his humanity where he's half man, water down his divinity where he's half deity, and you have lost the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You will never understand who Christ is until you say is man of man, God of gods. The truth lies at both of the extremes. And the same thing is true in most theological points. When you come to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, you declare two extremes and say they're both true at the same time. (coughs) There are two books that are dealing with the subject (coughs) of continuity and discontinuity that need a response. And the one is John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, And the other is Richard Barcellus' book In Defense of the Decalogue. Both of these books have the same goal of proving that in the area of morality and ethics there is total continuity in both the Old and New Covenants. I published a lengthy review of Barcellus' book In Defense of Jesus, the New Lawgiver. In this message this morning, we want to give a partial review of John Murray's book. John Murray's Principle of Conduct, by the way, is the book that pushed me out of covenant theology it was written for the express purpose of resolving the problem of continuity and discontinuity in the area of ethics and morality he was especially concerned with proving that easy divorce (coughs) as set forth in the Old Testament and the practice of polygamy was just as sinful for the Israelite for David as it would be for us today He dealt with the problem or was going to deal with the problem (coughs) of how the sinful behavior under the old covenant that would not be tolerated in the new covenant, and yet it doesn't seem that it was punished in the old covenant. (coughs) Mary openly acknowledges that this and the church must be under the same canon of conduct as well as under the same one covenant of grace. In other words, the book is about Continuity. If there are two different canons of conduct, one for Israel and another for the church, then covenant theology's view of the continuity of the moral law is not tenable. Remember the three essential building blocks of covenant theology. These three points are not even discussable. They are covenant theology, they are continuity. One, there is one unchanging covenant of grace. All other covenants are administration of this one and same covenant. There is continuity. Two, there is one redeemed people under this one covenant of grace. Israel is the Jewish redeemed church. The Christian church is the same redeemed church with the Gentiles added to it. There's one continuity, one church. Three, there's one unchanging moral canon of conduct for this one redeemed people under this one covenant of grace the first line of Professor Murray's book proper says this one of the main purposes of the lectures and of this volume is to seek to show the basic unity and continuity of the biblical ethic in other words he's going to show the continuity of the quote moral law the way to discover the organic unity and continuity of divine revelation that's his concern continuity Murray's thesis is both simple and also clear. The Bible teaches total continuity in the area of ethics and morality. He believes there's one unchanging set of moral standards that were given to Adam at creation, remained in force after the fall, were given again at Mount Sinai, and are still in force today after Christ came. In order to be certain that we understand what's being discussed, let me give you a clear statement by Murray on his position. He raises the right questions. We now turn our attention to two fundamental questions relevant to biblical ethics. Are we justified in speaking of norms or standards as the canons of biblically sanctioned and approved behavior? And two, assuming there are norms of behavior, where are they derived? Where do they come from? Where do we find them in Scripture? Mary is asking two questions. The first question is, is there a clearly defined set of standards in the area of ethics and morals? Is there one unchanging set of moral laws that was given to Adam and to all his descendants to control their morality? Is there one unchanging moral law of God for all people in all ages? Mary answers this question with an emphatic yes. There is a uniform and consistent set of ethical standards that are the same under both the Old and the New Testaments and the Old and New Testament scriptures. These standards or laws are biblically sanctioned and approved by God for moral behavior in all ages for all people. Murray's second question is, where do we find this one unchanging law? And his answer is, as they are given to Adam in the garden, as they were written in men's hearts, as they are republished, written on the tables of the covenant that God gave to Israel at Sinai. In short... One unchanging on moral law of God is the Ten Commandments, as promulgated at Mount Sinai. Those are his words. Here's his statement, quote, The Ten Commandments, it will be surely admitted, furnish the core of the biblical ethic. When we apply the biblico-theological method to the study of Scripture, it will be seen that the Ten Commandments, as promulgated at Sinai, were but the concrete and practical form of enunciating principles which did not teach then for the first time for the first time come to have relevance but have been relevant from the beginning. And by that he means the time of Adam. It will also be seen that as they did not begin to have relevance at Sinai so they did not cease to have relevance when the economy of Sinai was passed away. It is biblico-theological study that demonstrates that these commandments embody principles which belong to the order which God established for man at the beginning as also the order of redemption. In other words, we discover that they belong to the organism of divine revelation respecting God's will for man. That's on page 7. Murray is saying that that God gave the Ten Commandments to Adam. Covenant theology teaches that God gave the Ten Commandments to Adam as the terms of the covenant of works. He's talking about the Ten Commandments as promulgated at Sinai. I heard that Murray advocated a six-day schedule at the seminary instead of five days because the commandment says six days shalt thou labor. I've never seen that validated, but I agree that it is the logical conclusion to Murray's position, no question. The last quote just mentioned from Murray needs a few comments. First, Believing that the Ten Commandments have relevance before Sinai and believing they have the same relevance today is two different things. We agree that nine of the Ten Commandments had relevance before and following Sinai. They became far more relevant at Sinai because those commandments became the summary terms of the Old Covenant. They were now the words of the Covenant. The Sabbath had no relevance at all before Sinai because it was not made known until Sinai in Exodus 16. The Sabbath commandment had the most significance of all the 10 because it was the sign of the covenant. When the old covenant of which the Sabbath was the ceremonial sign was fulfilled and replaced by the new covenant, the 10 commandments ceased to be covenant terms and lost their major relevance. The Sabbath was fulfilled and done away and lost all of its significance. It's obvious to see why it is so essential to covenant theology to have the Sabbath be a moral law and not merely a ceremonial sign of the covenant. If the Sabbath was given at Sinai, instead of at creation, covenant theology's whole system of continuity breaks down in the area of ethics. I should add that how you behave on the Sabbath, which has been changed to Sunday, is not important in the practice or behavior in most covenant theology churches. Apart from going to church at 11 a.m., there is very little difference in the behavior of Christians and non-Christians on Sunday, the new Sabbath. They eat lunch at the same restaurants. They watch the same football on TV. All that matters is you hold theologically to the Sabbath being a moral commandment. That keeps the system intact. Let me give you two illustrations of what I mean. a famous famous Reformed Baptist preacher was speaking at a conference in Toronto on the subject, the moral law of God. A friend of mine invited him out to supper and he agreed to go and my friend said, before you agree, I should tell you that according to your last sermon's definition of antinomians, then I'm an antinomian because I don't believe the Sabbath is part of the moral law. And the pastor said I'll still eat with you and he smiled but he said I thank you for warning me. My friend said if I had two wives or was living with two women that weren't married to either one of them would you eat supper with me? And the preacher got mad. And my friend said it seems to me that you're not concerned with all of the commandments you're only concerned with some of the commandments. Can you imagine what would happen to morality In our churches, if we treated the seventh commandment the way we treat the fourth commandment. Second illustration is this. I was preaching in Georgia in an Orthodox Presbyterian church holding a series of meetings. And I went out to lunch with the pastor and three of his elders. While we were waiting for our lunch, one of the elders said, I ordered a new putter and and I want to see if it's still in we were at the country club we ate lunch at the country club he says, I want to see if my new putter's in and we looked out the window and a few minutes later he came onto the putting green which was right outside of the window we were reading and he had a new putter and a fistful of balls and one of the elders said to me John I understand that you don't believe the Sabbath is a moral law but a ceremonial law he says we believe it's a very important part of the holy law of God why do you feel the way you feel And I looked at him and I said, I refuse to discuss the Sabbath with a pastor and three elders watching one of their members play golf out on the putting lawn on a Sunday and we're eating in a restaurant on a Sunday. I refuse to discuss the Sabbath under those conditions. (laughs) He laughed and didn't ask any more questions. That was nonsense. How in the world anybody could be eating dinner out on Sunday watching somebody practice the putting and then wanna talk about the Sabbath (laughs) as a holy law of God is beyond me. (laughs) I know of nothing that is more hypocritical among some churches than their treatment of the Sabbath. They will tie people's conscience up in knots and then when you ask what can I do, is it a sin to eat out? That's up to your Christian liberty that is a total cop out and the response is we don't want to become
1: legalists
0: (laughs) And and I say those guys that stoned that man to death in numbers 11 were not legalists and there has to be some continuity of some kind some moral equivalency to the old testament if you're going to bring it over to the new there has to be moral equivalency of how you're going to make the rules We don't believe the 10 commandments as given in Exodus 20 are either all pure moral law or that they all carry the same definition under the new covenant as they did when given at Sinai to Israel. There is not a one-on-one continuity as Murray insists and as essential to covenant theology. We believe the scriptures clearly demonstrate that the tables of the covenant were never meant to be anything other than their name clearly implies, namely the tables of the covenant The Ten Commandments are the summary document of the terms of the covenant of works made with the nation of Israel at Sinai. We believe that progressive revelation applies to ethics and morality as well as other biblical subjects. The Ten Commandments were indeed the highest revelation of the moral character of God that was ever given up to that point in time. However, our Lord in his person, work, and teaching Raise that revelation to a much higher level. This is one of the bottom line issues with covenant theology. In their mind the Decalogue is the unchanging moral law of God and Moses is the giver of the highest expression of the law of God that we have on all of scripture. And all that Christ does is reaffirm that and tell us what Moses really meant. Moses is Lord over the conscience today including the New Covenant Christians, in the same sense that he was Lord over Israel's conscience. We believe this denies the truth of the New Covenant freedom from the tyranny of the law in the conscience. In no sense whatever are we rejecting God's authoritative rule. However, we do reject covenant theology's insistence that the Decalogue was and is the unchanging moral law. We reject their view of continuity. We believe the New Covenant Scriptures give us objective rules and principles to guide our life. We do not believe we have a detailed unchanging list. We do not have a t- new tables of stone. Everything Jesus did, taught, and exemplified is part of our rule of life for today. The Scriptures give us, as New Covenant believers, a revelation of the will of God for our life. However, it does not come as a codified list as it did under the Old Covenant. Before we move on, I want to make a comment about Murray's Biblico-Theological Method of Interpreting Scripture. This statement involves the use of what what the Westminster Confession calls good and necessary consequences deduced from scriptures. That may or may not be a valid methodology and needs to be discussed. Either way, maybe we have somebody speak on that next year. However, assuming it is legitimate, It must be acknowledged that covenant theology grossly misuses it in establishing their view of infant baptism, the Sabbath, and tithing, etc. We need to look a bit more carefully at Murray's second question. Whence are these canons derived? Our answer to that question is in sharp disagreement with Murray and his covenant theology. In order to be certain we understand what's being discussed, let me give a clear statement by Murray on his position. I'm not sure, but I think that many covenant theologians would disagree with him on the as promulgated at Mount Sinai I'm not sure they would agree with that because that means there can't be any change whatsoever and you would have difficulty even changing from Saturday to Sunday they are all literally set in stone for all time Murray means beyond question that the tablets of the covenant as given at Sinai are the unchanging moral law of God for all time for all people we believe such a statement and conviction totally misses the fact that the Decalogue was the document that summarized the old covenant of law made specifically with the nation of Israel and as such had the historical beginning and historical ending of the theocracy which brought it into being and governed with a sword until Christ came. This theology exalts Moses over Christ and the apostles. We believe the Ten Commandments as they're understood and taught by Christ and his apostles are a vital part of our rule of life. One of the catch questions is, do you believe the Ten Commandments are the rule of life for a Christian? And we respond by saying, we believe that the Ten Commandments as they are understood and interpreted by Christ and his apostles are a very vital part of our rule of life. If by the statement, these commandments embody principles... Murray means that the Ten Commandments contain eternal and unchanging moral law, then we agree without question. However, that's not what he means. He means the Ten Commandments as promulgated at Sinai are in their entirety, with no exceptions, pure unchanging moral law. This we reject. If by revelance, Murray means that the moral principles contained in the Ten Commandments always have been, always will be enforces as moral principles then we again say we agree however if he means then and he does that the Decalogue as given at Sinai has always had the same relevance and is enforced in the same sense as when it was given to Sinai then we must again disagree and that's what he means because he's arguing for continuity remember covenant theology denies that the Decalogue is a covenant of works It is God's unchanging moral law given to God's redeemed people for their sanctification. Murray is one of the most honest writers you'll ever read. He does not wait for you to raise the objections to what he has said. He raises them himself. He admits that the idea that there is one unchanging moral code for all people in all ages raises serious problems. That's why he wrote the book. Notice carefully what he says. Quote, It is quite obvious that this statement of the case poses several questions. And the most basic of these is the question, is there in a sense defined a biblical ethic? Is there one coherent and consistent ethic set forth in the Bible? In other words, is there continuity between the Old and the New Testament, the Old and New Covenants on moral law? Is there not diversity in the Bible and diversity of a kind that embraces antithetical elements. Are there not in the Bible canons of conduct that are contrary to one another? Is there a different canon for Israel than there is for the church? To be specific, this is still Murray quoting, is there not an antithesis between the canons of conduct sanctioned and approved of God in the Old Testament and those sanctioned and approved of God in the New in respect of certain central features of human behavior? That's the question. Is it a patent fact, or no, it is a patent fact that the behavior of the most illustrious of Old Testament believers was characterized by practices which are clearly contradictory of the elements, elementary demands of the New Testament ethic. Monogamy is surely a principle of the Christian ethic. Old Testament saints practice polygamy in like manner under the Old Testament divorce was practiced on grounds which could not be tolerated in terms of the explicit provisions of the New Testament revelation and polygamy and divorce were practiced without avert disapprobation in terms of the canon of behavior which were recognized as regulative you get this now They were recognized as regulative but were not sanctioned and approved by God. It seems to me that's a contradiction. This last sentence raises the right questions. One of the major problems is terminology. Murray talks about canons of behavior, the law established by God, canons of behavior recognized but not sanctioned by God, the perceptive will of God, and other things. He has canons of conduct recognized as regulative, but not sanctioned and approved by God. The heart of the problem that Murray states is the obvious fact that there's an antithesis in the current canons of conduct between the Old and New Covenants, between Israel's rule of life and the Church's rule of life. But covenant theology cannot believe in that kind of discontinu- discontinuity. Murray's covenant theology demands that polygamy is always a sin. Otherwise, you have two canons of conduct, and you destroy continuity. Polygamy is always a violation of the seventh commandment, regardless of who practices it. David consciously lived in the sin of adultery all of his life, and God did not overtly punish it. It is a patent fact, and those are Murray's statements, that's his words, not mine. It is a patent fact that Old Testament saints... They were true believers. Men like David and Abraham practiced polygamy. That's a fact. There were clear canons of behavior which were recognized by God and by the people, by God because he gave them, as regulative in the Old Testament. However, these recognized canons of behavior allowed polygamy to be practiced without overt disapprobation by God, even though polygamy was in reality Adultery a clear breaking of the seventh commandment in the sight of God. In this last quote, Mary adds to the difficulty to be faced. He frankly admits the obvious, namely the fact that polygamy was clearly contrary to the revealed will of God and rested under his judgment, end of quote. But God chose to not treat it as a sin. Then he continues with this. These are questions which must be faced. Remember that in these instances of polygamy and divorce, we're not dealing with the deviations from the explicitly revealed provisions of Old Testament law, as for example the adultery and murder committed by David for which he was so sharply reproved in terms of recognized law. Our study is not empirical ethics, but the biblical approved ethics. In other words, what the Bible says, not what sociology says. The polygamy and divorce which we are now concerned would meet with the severest reproof and condemnation in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, there appears to be no overt pronouncement of condemnation and no infliction of disciplinary judgment. Are we not compelled to recognize that the New Testament not only marks a distinct development in the process of revelation but also in some of the basic particulars of human behavior, institutes a change from one set of canons to another, and that therefore there is not only development and addition, but reversal and abrogation. And Mary's going to answer that, no, there is not. And we're going to say, yes, there is. We would say, yes, the Bible facts force us to see two different rules of conduct. And the covenant theologian will say, no, Israel's rule of life was the same as the church's. What's at stake is continuity. What's at stake is those two things, one covenant, one church, one rule. Murray continues, Is the case such that it was perfectly consonant with the law established and revealed by God in the Old Testament for a man to have more than one wife at the same time and for a man to put away his wife for relatively late causes, whereas in the New Testament it is unequivocally wrong and severely sensible for a man to have more than one wife and to put away one's wife except for the cause of adultery. Is there this open contrast in respect of conduct as elementary and far-reaching as the marital relations of man and wife? We are required to face squarely the question of the relation of the Old Testament to the New in respect of the criteria of upright and holy living. Now that last statement. Are we not required to face squarely the question of the relationship of the Old Testament and the New? That's the question. That's what continuity and discontinuity is really all about. Now I should add here that I do not have to prove that there are two canons of conduct. Murray has to prove that the two canons of conduct which are there are really only one canon of conduct and he admits this, that he has to prove that. Murray mentions that some might say polygamy was necessary to replenish the earth as when a war kills all of the sons and so on. But Murray's too honest a writer. He refuses to accept that as a cop-out. He deals with the question. He's already acknowledged that in terms of not punishing what was clearly a sin that's exactly what God has done or rather not done. The dilemma for Murray is that God allowed and legislated what was actually sin. Polygamy. We must be sure that we clearly understand Murray's answer to his dilemma that he himself raised. And you got to understand that God allowed a continual breaking of the seventh commandment a continual breaking of the seventh commandment by David and Abraham and men like that and never overtly punished it (coughs) polygamy was tolerated by God in the Old Testament even though it was basically wrong as it was established or was taught in the seventh commandment it was not only wrong but had been clearly revealed to man at the beginning in what Mary calls the creation ordinance that it was wrong or a sin David had no excuse for living in adultery most of his life God's perceptive will or the creation ordinance was clear even though polygamy was a sin and it had been clearly revealed to be a sin and therefore rested under God's judgment God nevertheless chose to tolerate and regulate it instead of punishing it with either civil or ecclesiastical penalties In other words, polygamy was a sin that broke the seventh commandment. And since God had clearly revealed it to be such in a creation ordinance, the people should have realized that polygamy was a sin. Polygamy rested under God's just judgment, but he chose not to punish it, but chose to tolerate and regulate it. Again, Murray's honest with the implications of his own position. He doesn't wait for his opponents to raise the embarrassing questions. Murray clearly states the difficulty himself. Quote: The insistent question immediately arises: How could this be? How could God allow his people, in some cases the most eminent of Old Testament saints, to practice what was a violation of his perceptive will? Now, his perceptive will and his revealed will can be seen to be two different things. How could God allow a flagrant and open uh, disobedience to one of his 10 commandments and go unpunished. God's revealed will and God's perceptive will are not the same thing as the canons of behavior which were recognized as regulative in the old covenant or the Old Testament scriptures. It seems to me much simpler and far more consistent with scripture to believe that adultery was always a sin, but polygamy was not considered adultery under the old covenant, but it is a sin under the new covenant. We'll begin with divorce and remarriage and see if there's continuity. One of the first rules in understanding a biblical subject is to start your study with a key passage or passages that deal directly with the specific subject you wanna study. If you want to know what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage, you would begin with Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And you say, why start with that passage? Because the Lord himself was asked the specific question about divorce and remarriage. And if anybody ought to know the answer, he ought to know the answer. The Pharisees ask in verse 3, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? It's vital to understand exactly what is assumed and what's being asked in the passage. This one verse sells a lot of questions. First of all, the question establishes the fact that the Old Testament clearly taught divorce and remarriage. The Pharisees were not asking, Is divorce and remarriage lawful, since that was established in Deuteronomy 24? They were asking if divorce and remarriage was legitimate for every cause. Actually, they were asking what uncleanness meant in Deuteronomy 24. They were asking Jesus to settle an argument between two schools of Jewish thought on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Don Carson has an excellent quote. Quote, In mainstream Palestinian Judaism, opinion was divided roughly into two opposite camps. Both the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai permitted divorce of the woman by the man. The reverse was not considered. There was a bit of a discrimination against women back then. The reserve was not cons- the reverse was not considered on the grounds of Irwat Debar. I think I pronounced that right. That's Hebrew. I know a little Hebrew. Not he has a he has a clothing store down on Third Street. <laughs> Something indecent, that's what Deuteronomy says. They understood it was something indecent, but they didn't know what indecent, something indecent meant. And it soon degenerated into just about anything. So there's one school of thought that was very strict on what that meant. And the other one meant almost if you didn't brush your teeth. Jesus does not side with either school of thought. He insists in his kingdom, divorce and remarriage would be allowed, but only on the grounds of fornication or sexual immorality. Jesus changed the rules and raised the bar for divorce and remarriage. He threw out the uncleanness ground and restricted divorce to only one reason, sexual immorality. Later, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will add willful desertion as another ground. In answering the Pharisees, Jesus goes back past Moses and appeals to what theologians call a creation ordinance. Verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. It's obvious that God's original purpose was one man and one woman in a forever bonded relationship. If God had intended either divorce and remarriage or polygamy, he would have made one man and two or three women. God's clear intention at creation creation cannot allow or anticipate either divorce or polygamy. There's no way you can get any kind of approval, acceptance, or tolerance of divorce or polygamy into the genesis passage the pharisees responded by appealing to genesis 24 they said why did moses then command to give a divorce of a writing of divorce and to put her away they were referring to genesis 24, 1 through 4 this is an important passage let's look at it 24 of 1. when a man hath taken a wife and married her and it come to pass that she find no favor or some uncleanness in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, which took her to be his wife, Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. And then he has this interesting verse. When a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home for one year, and shall cheer up his wife Which he had taken, and I read that and I thought, I wonder why she needed to be cheered up. (laughs) First of all, the Pharisees distorted what Moses actually commanded. Moses did indeed command that if a man divorced his wife, he must give her a bill of divorcement, but he never commanded a man to divorce his wife. If you were a Jewish man living under the law of God, Given to Moses, you could literally disown your wife without a court trial or any official ritual. You merely said, I divorce you, get out. Of course, the woman did not have the same right. It's not hard to imagine what some women could easily suffer at the hands of hard-hearted sinful men. Without a bill of divorcement, the woman could not remarry and would be doomed to the worst of hardships. God did command that if you divorce, you write her a bill of divorcement. Secondly, the only excuse the man needed to divorce his wife was she found no favor in his eyes because he hath found some uncleanness in her. No favor and uncleanness soon deteriorated to mean almost anything. Thirdly, under no circumstances could the man remarry a woman that he had divorced. That's changed also. Fourthly, upon the marriage, the man got a whole year off on vacation just to cheer up his wife. I wonder if he would have married another woman every year He'd have to never have to worry the rest of his life. <laughs> Jesus responds to the Pharisees' half-truth. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you that whosoever should put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her which is put away doth commit adultery. Murray hangs his whole argument, his whole argument he hangs on this phrase because of the hardness of your hearts. And I don't think that the way he uses it is legitimate. Hardness of heart was certainly the reason for the necessity of the bill of divorcement. But Moses, I mean, but but Murray makes this mistake. He fails to mention that David was not a hard-hearted sinner. Abraham is not a hard-hearted, ungodly man. God's people, whether they're in the New Testament or the Old Testament, have a new heart in the sense that they want to please God. And David in no sense whatever can be hard-hearted. He is a man after God's own heart. So you can't hang that on that argument. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, these verses establish the verses we just read from Matthew 19, 8 and 9. These verses establish some clear facts that govern the biblical teaching on divorce and remarriage. First of all, God changed the rules that govern marriage. In the creation ordinance, divorce was not a possibility. In Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, divorce and remarriage was legal under certain circumstances. The old covenant allowed divorce and remarriage on the grounds of uncleanness. You can spin that any way you like, but God specifically allowed in Deuteronomy 24, what he did not allow under the creation ordinance and likewise, he allowed in Deuteronomy 24, what he did not allow under the new covenant and he's very specific. No divorce under any condition and divorce for uncleanness is two radically different things. That's the two rules of conduct God allowed under Moses, what was not allowed from the beginning. Our first point is clear, the law of God given to Moses concerning divorce and remarriage changed the original purpose of God in the Garden of Eden because of the hardness of men's hearts. The second clear point concerns Jesus, contrasting his teaching with that of Moses. Jesus rejected what the law of God given to Moses allowed, the law of Moses allowed for divorce and remarriage on grounds other than adultery or sexual immorality. But Jesus said, not so in my kingdom. The new rules allowed divorce and remarriage only for one reason, adultery. As mentioned earlier, there was a discussion concerning what uncleanness meant, but there was no discussion that it did not include adultery. Adultery earned the death penalty. A husband could not have given a bill of divorcement to an adulterous wife which permitted her to marry another man. I know this contradicts one of the foundation stones of covenant theology, but facts are facts. Jesus changed the laws that God gave to Moses concerning divorce and remarriage. Moses allowed what Jesus rejected. Jesus instituted a new and different law concerning divorce and remarriage. A comparison of Matthew 19, 9, and Deuteronomy 1 through four, make it abundantly clear that one. In Deuteronomy, there's a, there is a legitimate divorce and remarriage for grounds other than adultery. And then number two, the only legitimate, the only legitimate grounds for divorce in the kingdom of Christ is adultery. That's two different canons. Jesus is surely teaching that a radical change has taken place, but he's in no sense saying the old was bad. He's changing from the rule by law to the rule by grace. The law of Moses, the law of God to Moses was just as essential for that time, for that period. Mr. Jeffries, can I use the word dispensation here? Hmm? Okay. (laughs) The law of God to Moses was just as essential for that dispensation and situation as it would have been totally wrong for Adam in the garden. Let's take a quick look at polygamy and see if there's continuity that is essential to Mary's position in this passage. Polygamy. It's impossible to even consider polygamy in the Garden of Eden. You couldn't even discuss it. (laughs) They wouldn't have even known what it meant. Polygamy was allowed and regulated under the old covenant in Exodus 21 uh, 21 chapter 10 when a man took his second wife he had to sleep with his first wife as well as his second wife he could not deny her her conjugational rights that was legislating if if you think that through if, if polygamy is a sin then what God is saying when you take your second wife because of the hardness of your hearts I know you're going to break the seventh commandment and, and commit adultery by practicing polygamy, but when you do it, make sure that you don't complicate it by committing more adultery with your second wife. That, that, that to me is difficult to grasp. A good example of this, this, this idea is David and Bathsheba. David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover up his adultery. He was married, Bathsheba was married. And God, at this time, David had several wives. And God was upset. And God sent a prophet to David and told David that he had sinned and he was going to pay for his sin that the child was going to die. David committed, clearly committed adultery. No question about that at all. Then David engineered Uriah she was husband's death and God judged him and he took the life of the child. I think the Holy Ghost has a sense of humor. The Holy Ghost is amazing in inspiration. The child was a boy and he died on the seventh day. The eighth day he would have been circumcised. I don't know if you believe in infant salvation but if you if you do Here's a child who was born out of sin, died because of the judgment of God, and David expressed a hope that he would see that child again. That does not prove uh, infant—that does not prove infant salvation. It doesn't prove that child went to heaven. It does believe it does prove that David believed that. Now, whether David was justified in it, you can argue with him. But anyhow, that's that's a subject for another day. God took the child. He died David engineers the death of Uriah then he marries Bathsheba now he already has several wives he marries Bathsheba Bathsheba gets pregnant Bathsheba has another child and his name is Solomon and God sent the same prophet that came with the message of condemnation and that same prophet was told to come and tell David that God loved that son Solomon Now listen. If David committed sin by practicing polygamy. Then Solomon is just as much a child of adultery as the son who died. There's no difference whatsoever. In 2nd Samuel chapter 12 verse 8. When Nathan came to David he said. I gave you your master's wives. You are forced to say that David consciously lived in multiple adulterous relationships all of his life, and yet at the same time he was a man after God's own heart, if polygamy is a sin. One more thing. Did you ever think of the fact that God's holy nation, his holy people, the 12 tribes of Israel, one father, four mothers, The founders of the tribes of Israel were all born out of adulterous situations if polygamy is really adultery. But if polygamy is not adultery under the old covenant, then that's an entirely different matter. One last thing, at the end of the day when we're all done talking and we're all done arguing, continuity and discontinuity is finally going to involve a discussion on the power of the grace of God versus the power of the law of God. That's going to be the final thing. Does the grace of God have a teaching power of its own? Does it have a disciplinary action of its own in the hands of the Holy Ghost? And can we trust the Holy Ghost to guide the people of God into truth
2: good afternoon my name's Alex Sisson from Texas I'm trying to sort through some things and I was wondering if you could help me out if the law has been fulfilled by Christ people born today are no longer under the law as it's been fulfilled by Christ why would a 21st century Gentile need righteousness from a law he's not under imputed to him.
0: Wait a minute. Say this again. <laughs> Talk up real loud. I got, I'm getting hard of hearing. Go ahead. Yes, sir.
2: I'll try to do better. If the law has been fulfilled by Christ and a Gentile born 2,000 years after Christ is no longer under a law due to Christ fulfilling it, then why would they need righteousness from that law that Christ... Fulfilled, imputed to them.
0: Okay. They were sinners. They needed to be justified. And to be justified, they needed forgiveness. They needed righteousness. And the question as to the Gentiles being under the law. Our Lord Jesus Christ did not die as a Jewish savior. He died as the savior of the elect of God. And the Gentile who was a believer, one of the elect, was just as much in Christ as was a Jew who was in Christ. An unsaved Jew was not in Christ. Not a Jew was not represented by Christ. But a Gentile who was a believer, a Jew who was a believer, were represented by Christ. So I was under the law in Christ, and I was under grace in Christ.
1: I don't know if that helps or not. Okay. Pastor John, um, I asked you this question uh, previously up at Rockwood Acres, and you said you needed some more time to think about it. Well, I think you've had enough time. <laughs> um, it's concerning Matthew chapter 19, um, particularly uh, regarding verse 9. Um, and it says, uh, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Uh, Concerning the prohibition on remarriage, does that concern a man only if he's remarrying a woman he has previously been married to, or is that addressing a man who's remarrying or marrying a woman who had been previously married to another man and was divorced from him?
0: Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. And shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marries her which is put away, doth commit adultery. I'm not sure what your real question is here.
1: Uh, is there a distinction between remarrying a woman you had previously been married to, or marrying a woman that someone else had been married to and was divorced from? Does the prohibition uh, cover both uh, situations, or I only think one? That
0: the prohibition is, is, is the prohibition only covers. The committing of adultery, whether it was somebody who was married before or first-time married or whatever, doesn't make any difference. Whoever, whoever commits adultery has severed the marriage, has broken the marriage. It's a sticky issue, and by the time it gets to the... Usually, this issue, when it, by the time it gets to the pastor, it's like scrambled eggs, and you can't unscramble scrambled eggs. And if there's ever a time we don't need a legalist, it's when we get into the question of divorce and remarriage. I
1: don't know if that helps or not. I believe so. I I assume that uh, a large portion of grace is necessary in such situations. Yeah. Thank you, sir.
0: Hello, Heather.
3: Hi. Um, I want to ask you to um, think about a problem you alluded to and maybe deal with it in the sound of grace or maybe at the next conference. It's uh, about the Baptists, Reformed Baptists today who um, still cling to covenant theology. Um, I really have trouble understanding how they can do that when Baptists stand for Believer's Baptism and separation of church and state, and uh, maybe could you just think about that?
0: Talk up a little more.
3: (laughs) Think about that for another conference or in the Sound of Grace. I understand, I don't agree with them, but I understand that they sided with the Presbyterians in 1689 because um, they were reformed and they believed in the doctrines of grace and they didn't want to uh, align themselves with Arminians. But today we're free, and I don't see why they don't want to stand up for believers' baptism and and the truths in the Bible.
0: I can only catch about half of that. I don't know whether it's a... Okay.
1: Reformed Baptist John. Reformed Baptist. You not mind Heather since my voice may be a little. She was speaking about the inconsistency of Reformed Baptists who embrace covenant theology and the concern she had for- with that. And you're addressing that at a future conference or in Sound of Grace.
0: The Reformed Baptists I think are inconsistent. And I think that basically, Reformed Baptists, many of them are really immersed Presbyterians. Not all of them, but they really are immersed Presbyterians. And therefore, they're already predisposed. Uh, you, you see this in evidence in, in ordination. Uh, for instance, in, in Pastor Walter Chantry's church in Carlisle, Grace Baptist Church. Uh, I don't know how many young men have been ordained to the ministry from there. But I know of five personally that were ordained to the Baptist ministry who have subsequently become Presbyterian ministers. And, the, and the, the, the worst part of this story is that doesn't bother that church. In fact, two of the, I think, two of the pastors who become Presbyterian are in mission work and are on the budget and supported by the church because that doesn't bother them. If, if that happened to me, I would stay awake at night saying where in the world did I go wrong that there are five of my finest young men are now forsaken in the Baptist faith because the, the, in, the, in the Reformed Baptist mind the idea of baptism is, is not just secondary but it's totally almost immaterial and the doctrines of the covenant theology are really paramount and, and that's, that's why the difficulty is and that is, to me, is an inconsistency. Some good men, some very godly men, but they don't understand any more than the Presbyterian understands. And when you start talking to a Presbyterian and and get him really down to the issues, and they they just start talking nonsense, and the same thing is true in in Reformed Baptists. Most of the Reformed Baptist works on infant baptism really is a duel of logic who is the best logician with the same position, and and none of them really deal with this. The 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 one I haven't seen Tom Schreiner's book yet, but I think the chapter that uh, Steve Wellum has in it really gets into the root of uh, covenant theology.
2: I, I'll ask one more since nobody else wants to. We got to what like five o'clock, I guess. Did Christ break the Mosaic law when he uh, told them not to stone the adultering woman or that it was okay to work on the Sabbath?
0: Move away from the mic a little bit. Now talk.
2: Now
0: talk? Yeah, t- talk real loud.
2: Did Christ break the Mosaic law when he told them the not to stone the woman in adultery? That's a good question.
0: That's a good question. Does anybody have a good answer?
3: <laughs> yes.
2: He did not
0: break the Mosaic Law. They were about to. If they had stoned that woman, it would have been a direct violation of the Mosaic Law. And if you preach a message on that passage, a good title is the Missing Adulterer. They, they tried to use the law against Christ to set him up. And he, he, the law, is sitting there and turns it right back on them. He called their bluff. Let him who is without, without sin cast the first stone is the secret to understanding that passage. They didn't dare because they were not without sin. They knew where to grab that woman. They knew this was going on. And it's, I think it's very possible that it was one of their numbers that was committing this adultery. And they did
2: not want to bring that man. You only, when you stone for adultery, it takes two to (laughs) tango.
0: Come on up here and sit down, will you? (laughs) You agree? agree? Uh, Let me think about it. (laughs) I never agree with anything the first time I hear it. (laughs)